If you have your Bibles, open them up to Daniel chapter 6. We're going to stop in Daniel 6 today um, and then go back into Matthew next week. So this is kind of going to conclude this series we've been doing about exile. And how does this story resolve all of this stuff? I've been thinking a lot, especially in the last few weeks, about the complexity of stories. Um, This last weekend, we had the chance to take uh, our son, Griffin, uh, back to Socorro to see uh, the church in Socorro, because that's we spent a lot of our formative years, and a lot of those people played incredibly vital roles, 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 there's the word, in praying for us and participating with us in that. And I want to tell you a little bit of a story of that and kind of unfold that into multiple other stories, but I, I have a picture for you. This is a picture of one of the deacons in Socorro. His name's Tom Zumbro. He's an incredible guy, and there's, there's Griffin holding him. Tom Zumbro, uh, in a lot of ways, was the first person I ever opened up to about uh, as Haley and I were dealing with infertility problems. Uh, Tom, every year uh, in the fall, had this tradition with me where he would always take me squirrel hunting. He always wanted to go squirrel hunting. Now, for Tom, what that meant was he, he really doesn't have great mobility. That's his new walker he has to get around on. Back six years ago, seven years ago or so, uh, he had a cane that he would walk around with. But what squirrel hunting meant for him was if I bring Philip with me squirrel hunting, I can pull the truck over to the side of the road when I see a squirrel, shoot the squirrel, and Philip will go get the squirrel and bring it back to the truck. That was squirrel hunting with Tom Zumbro um, because I wasn't good enough aim with a gun to hit a squirrel. And so usually I would get the squirrel and I'd bring it back to him, and then the day would end with something along the lines of, well, here, Philip, you get half of these squirrels to take home with you. And I would say, Tom, I don't want those squirrels. Oh, they're delicious. You should definitely try them. Uh, You keep the squirrels. Anyways, that's all irrelevant. I just thought I needed to tell you that story to understand who Tom was. But Tom would ask me rather often, you know, hey, when are you and Haley going to, you know, start the process of a family and stuff? And the first year he talked about it, I really didn't respond all that much. But as he opened up to me, I kind of said, you know, Tom, that's something we've been interested in for a number of years, and it's just not happened. Um, We don't really know why. We don't know what's going on there. And so Tom, uh, at that point, kind of just vowed to pray for us through that and um, gave some encouraging words and, and said, you know, Philip, I just can't imagine a world where God wouldn't allow you to be a dad. Um, and that was a huge thing for someone like Tom to say to me. Um, I don't know what he sees, but that was something incredible. So there was something about this story this weekend to hand Griffin to Tom and to let Tom hold this child that he had participated in praying for in a lot of ways. And that's got me thinking so much about these stories that we all live the story of Griffin and how complex that story is because the story of Griffin is not just a story of Haley and I had a son. It's a story of you and Tom and people like that praying for that. And then you could start dialing that story back to the fringes of the webs that have designed that story and how weird that is. Because for those of you that don't know, Haley and I met in middle school. Um, I've showed this picture before, but I have to show this picture as well. This is us at the eighth grade dance uh, in middle school. The only reason her dad let her go to that dance with me, I know I'm a Baptist pastor talking about going to a dance, there's irony, take it for what it's worth. The only reason her dad let her go to that dance with me was because two weeks later he was going to go and plant a church in Albuquerque. And what harm can some 14-year-old kid do 22 hours away, right? So uh, we went to the dance, good relationship, she left, and we didn't talk for like seven years. And I think about the complexity of, had Haley and I not went to that dance together, 
had Haley and I not been put in the same eighth grade class, had Rick Britton never went to Lebanon, Tennessee to be a music minister, in a lot of ways, I wouldn't be standing here. And I get the nuance of, well, God can do what he wants and he can piece things together otherwise. And I understand that. But looking at the story God has written, had all of these things not happened, we wouldn't be here. And had all of these things not happened, Griffin wouldn't have existed. You guys think about stuff like this? Does it just make your eyes go cross-eyed and feel numb? Like, because every human that exists on this planet has that complexity of stories. You could take that back even further, because had Haley's parents never gotten married, Haley wouldn't have existed. So what does that mean? Because Haley's parents met at Inlow Camp, for those of you that know Southern Baptist uh, Bible camps. They met at Inlow. Uh, they started dating. Uh, Chris ended up breaking up with Rick, and so they split up. And then they actually somehow wound up back chaperoning camps at Inlow the next summer. And then there was this freak rainstorm because they did not want to talk to each other. And they all ran underneath canopies. And it just so happened he and her ran underneath the same canopy. This is like storybook romance novel, right? And then they started talking again. Had that rainstorm never came, what if they had never got back together? Had they never got back together? Had Haley not existed? If Haley hadn't existed, how would Philip have been here? If Philip hadn't been here, how would, right? You, you picking up? And you could take that back to her, uh, to Rick's parents' generation, and, his, and, and we could keep going. Do you see the complexity of stories? No story that we live in is this single remote event that happens. There's always something that precedes it and something that comes after it. The question is, what is God doing in weaving all of these stories together? And I say all of that because this is what I'm wanting to try to point out to you today. That Daniel chapter 6 is not just this standalone story of Daniel in the lion's den. We'll talk about that. But Daniel in the lion's den stands as this kind of key link in taking Israel from exile to restoration. That God's actually using this story to write a much bigger story. So today what I want to do is kind of do this sermon in two parts, so bear with me. It might feel a little bit discombobulated again, but I, I need to get through two different things. So it's going to be one part, a study through some key verses in Daniel chapter 6 and what God's doing through Daniel and the lion's den story. And then at the end, it'll be one part kind of overview of this entire exile storyline and the narrative of Daniel, and then I'll try to draw all that together and why that matters to today. So I'll go ahead and put the storyline up for you so you can see what the storyline uh, is going to look like. And I'll go ahead and fill in these kind of first two blanks because the story of Daniel is telling the story of how God takes Israel from exile to restoration. That's our two directions, from exile to restoration, and how does Daniel play a role in that? Let's recap where we've been. Over the past month or so, we've been using Daniel as this template for what does it mean to live life in exile? How do we live in this tension of knowing the core values of what we believe as Christ followers and what happens when those core values seem to stand in contrast to the core values of the larger culture around us? This is precisely the world Daniel lives in. It's precisely the world he spends his in, nearly his entire life in as a Hebrew captive in Babylon. But if you'll remember, a month ago or so, we, we talked about how the narrative of Daniel it actually doesn't really start in Daniel chapter 1. It starts, to some extent, in Jeremiah chapter 29. Because in Jeremiah 29, Jeremiah pens this letter to the exiles taken to Babylon, which would have included Daniel and his friends. And it's this instructive letter on how they're supposed to live in this 70-year period that Israel is going to be put in exile. So I actually want to go back and start there this morning. Jeremiah 29, the verse will be on the screen. 
uh, 4 through 7, and then I'll skip down to verse 10. It says this. This is what the Lord of armies, the God of Israel, says to all the exiles that I have deported from Jerusalem to Babylon. This is Daniel and his friends. Build houses and live in them. Plant gardens and eat of their produce. Find wives for yourselves and have sons and daughters. Find wives for your sons. Give your daughters to men in marriage that they may bear sons and daughters. Multiply there and do not decrease. Pursue the well-being of the city that I have deported you to. Pray to the Lord on its behalf, for when it thrives, you will thrive. Verse 10, for this is what the Lord says. When 70 years for Babylon are complete, I will attend to you, and I will confirm my promise concerning you to restore you to this place. That story from exile to restoration. This is the prophecy Daniel is given. So the question is, how are they going to get from exile to restoration? Well, Daniel seems, or Jeremiah seems to think that it's going to be through following these commands, build houses, plant gardens, start families, pray for the well-being of the city. But Daniel then is the narrative of how that story plays out from exile to restoration. So from here, Each of the first six chapters of the book of Daniel recounts some specific story from either his life or the life of his friends, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, and tells this story of where their life and their values clashes with the life and values of Babylon. And it's really what we've looked at over the last weeks as we've asked what are the strategies that Daniel and his friends employ that make them influential within their culture but not influenced by their culture. So uh, we'll put the chart back up, and I'm going to go through these really quickly. If you're interested in all these, there's a sermon over each one of them. You can go back and find it online, so I'm not going to talk through too much. But each one of these numbers represents a chapter. So in chapter 1, we talked about uh, Daniel and his friend's refusal to compromise, that if we're going to influence culture, it actually means it starts with not compromising with culture. King Nebuchadnezzar takes them from Jerusalem. He puts them in this three-year indoctrination school um, and offers them the best food, the best of all the empire has to offer. But, but even after having gone through that, Daniel looks at it in chapter 1, verse 8, and the text says Daniel resolves not to defile himself. He doesn't eat the king's food. He doesn't drink the king's wine. So while Daniel and his friends remain respectful to the authority, they kindly refuse to compromise with the beliefs Uh, for the sake of what they believe as Israelites. And this, in this ironic turn of events, is actually what causes Daniel and his friends to stand out as better than the other people. And then a little nod comes uh, and talks about Daniel, saying that they were ten times better. And then verse one, or chapter 1, verse 17, that Daniel actually also understands visions and dreams of every kind. And that's the little clue you get as the calling. So then chapter 2 is all about Daniel living into that calling. So not compromise, but living into calling. So rather than being influenced by the culture through compromise, Daniel influences the culture by living into that calling. King Nebuchadnezzar has this anxiety-inducing dream. He doesn't know how to make sense of it. He calls all the wise men in. No one can really tell him even what the dream is. And so finally he gets to Daniel, and Daniel asks for some time to pray about it. Daniel goes back home. He and his friends pray. And that night God reveals to Daniel both the dream and the interpretation. And Daniel goes and lives into that calling influencing King Nebuchadnezzar. But that doesn't really stop Nebuchadnezzar from trying to use his power to override religious freedoms as he demands in the next chapter that all the religious lead or all the political leaders bow down to the statue that he's built. And this led us to chapter three where we talked about what does it mean to live in non-participation. 
to look at what the world is asking you to do in record or in accordance with the status quo and actually saying, no, I'm actually not going to participate in that. I'm not going to do life that way. So as Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego look at bowing to the statue, they say, no, we're actually not going to bow to that national practice of worshiping Babylon. And this results in their death sentence to which God rescues them. Again, drawing Nebuchadnezzar to recognize even more the presence and power of this Hebrew God. Which that leads up to his testimony letter in chapter 4, where he humbles himself before the one true God, which that stands in direct contrast to chapter 5, where King Belshazzar, years after Nebuchadnezzar, is dead and gone, refuses to humble himself, and then loses the kingdom to the Persians. But still, both of those chapters are telling the story of how Daniel communicates truth effectively. That Daniel is going to be actually the voice of God to these two kings and then trust God's working within that as they respond, either in Nebuchadnezzar's case in repentance and humility or Belshazzar's case in the refusal to that and losing the kingdom. And this leads us to Daniel 6. So you, you tracking with me now? You following all of this? Do you remember all that stuff? That's been a lot. So Daniel 6. Daniel 6 is probably one of the most famous, most well-known Bible stories in all of Scripture. And, and, and rightly so. I mean, this text is filled with so many things. You could go three or four different directions here and I think be biblically accurate to what the text is communicating. Uh, but, but here's the challenge. There's a lot of text in Daniel chapter 6, and I don't have time to walk through it line by line. I mean, I would love to walk through Daniel 6 line by line, but we would be here to like two, and I bet you wouldn't love that. So, I'm just going to highlight a couple things. Let me summarize the story. We'll highlight a couple key verses in the story. Daniel chapter 6 opens with the Persian king, King Darius, having come in, overthrown Babylon, and set up Persia as the known national power, superpower of the world. Uh, and in fact, Persia is even more massively big than Babylon. Here, here's a picture that I thought I would just show you so you can kind of try to put a fathom. This is the world of Persia. This is everything that King Darius rules over. And so I'm going to try, it's not a one-for-one, one, but I'll overlay what the Persian or the Babylonian empire kind of looked like. So that gives you at least a little bit of a picture of how much bigger Persia is over Babylon. And the question is, how do you rule over this much land? You don't have phones or televisions or news sites to kind of help you hold unity within your nation. So Darius decides in the first part of chapter 6 that he's going to appoint 120 what the text called sitraps or governors over this area. And then over these 120 governors, he's going to choose three key political figures to rule over those 120 people, of which Daniel is one of the people he selects. Which that in itself is just ridiculously crazy. I mean, here you have this 80-year-old Hebrew exile. By the way, it's just worth noting, because I think sometimes when we think of the story of Daniel in the lion's den, we imagine like this 18-year-old muscular boy being thrown to the lions. Daniel's like 80-plus years old for this story. He's not a young guy. He's 80-plus, having lived the majority of his life in exile. And here you have this Hebrew 80-year-old exile having lived this totally non compliant life with his surrounding culture that's now consisted of three different empires, Judah, Babylon, and now Persia, spanning across multiple kings with different policies and tendencies, and yet he remains so distinguished that when the foreign ruler comes in and conquers, he looks at Daniel and says, actually, I'd rather trust this guy with leadership than any of my Persian people. That in itself is crazy. It's crazy enough that the satraps of Persia underneath Daniel actually aren't all that happy about it. 
So they make this decision that they're going to set course to have him overthrown. They start an investigation, uh, but they don't find anything wrong with him. There's nothing they can find against them, so they have to come up with something to set against them. And the best thing that they can do is attack his faith. So they plead to King Darius's ego. They have Darius write this decree that if anyone is going to pray uh, religiously in the nation of Persia, they either have to pray to King Darius or through King Darius, depending on how you want to translate a Hebrew linking verb or uh, what's the right, anyways, how you want to translate that word. Um, and so all of that to say, and it's an ingenious move, if you're going to try to unify a country, hey guys, everyone, you can pray to whatever God you want, but it's got to come through the king. Well, Daniel hears this, and that's not how he prays. He has direct way to pray to Yahweh himself. So when Daniel gets news of this, he does the thing that he's always done. He actually goes back to his house, he opens the windows, and he prays the exact same way he had done previously. Of course, the whole thing was a setup. So the, the satraps go in, they catch him, they tattletale on him to the king. And so the king is forced by constitutional law that he can't even amend to throw Daniel into the lion's den. And I'm sure you know the story from there. King can't sleep. He's worried that the man that he's thrown in, that he really has grown to trust, is dead. But upon returning back to the lion's den the next morning, he finds that Daniel's life has been spared. And a messenger of Daniel, uh, by a messenger of God, an angel that's closed the mouth of the lions, uh, and then he issues this new decree. He issues a decree to say anyone in Persia should acknowledge Daniel's God as God. So what does all this have to do? What does this have to do with the restoration of Israel? And we'll talk about that, but for now, I want to do just a quick little textual walkthrough of chapter 6 and ask the question, what is it that makes Daniel so distinguished that even through the rise and the fall of different kingdoms, he stands out as a man with integrity and wisdom and influence worth noting? Who is this 80-year-old Hebrew exile who finds himself once again among the elite of a foreign nation, having never compromised who he is or what he believes? And there's so much that can be taken from that, but I think the key attribute is faith. And then there's three parts of what his faith does, and these will be on the screen in the next chart, Kelsey. So all of this is his faithfulness. Faithfulness in excellence, faithfulness in character, and faithfulness in discipline. Let's talk through those three things just really, really quickly. Start out in verse 3 for me in Daniel chapter 6. Daniel chapter 6 verse 3 says, Daniel distinguished himself above the administrators and satraps because he had an extraordinary spirit. So the king planned to set him over the whole realm. There was something about Daniel where he was so excellent that the king could not ignore what it is he accomplished and what it is he stood for. See, see, here's the thing about excellence, though. Excellence is not something you just wake up with tomorrow morning. I mean, you can try to just wake up and say, I'm going to be an NFL quarterback today. It's not going to happen. Excellence is something you build over time. It's something you work at. So it's actually chapter 1 that sets the precedent for Daniel's excellence. When we see that after he's taken captive, chapter 1 verse 19 says, the king interviews Daniel and his friends, and he found no one equal. In every matter of wisdom and understanding that the king consulted them about, he found them ten times better than the magicians, mediums, and his entire kingdom. Daniel's influence from a place of exile is not just due to God's favor and a really good prayer life. That goes into it. But Daniel's influence is that he was really good at what he did. He was excellent at what he did. I think sometimes we miss this in the modern world. 
We, we miss the biblical call to excellence with this hidden attempt to mask our laziness with like superficial piety. God, I don't really want to put in the work to change portalis or work in my job, so uh, I'll instead fill that time with prayer. And I, I do come to church sometimes, God, and I do pray, but I'm not going to really commit myself to excellence. No, Daniel's influence was both the blessing of God on his faith and the continued growth of wisdom and learning through his distinguished excellence. If you want to influence a culture that doesn't match your core values, then you better be really good at whatever it is you do. You better be really good at raising kids. You better be really good at teaching high school math or high school English. And it's not in some attempt to garner God's love for you. God's love is already poured out at the cross. It's there, but it's in faithfulness to what God has given you. Daniel's 70 years of influence live in direct correlation with his excellence. But of course, excellence is nothing without character. Verse 4. Then the administrators and the satraps, therefore, kept trying to find a charge against Daniel regarding the kingdom. But they could find no charge or corruption, for he was trustworthy, and no negligence or corruption was found within him. I love that. No charge, no corruption. He was trustworthy, no negligence, no corruption was found in him. I mean, imagine, like, the FBI and the paparazzi set themselves to follow you around and study your life. That they're just going to look up and track everything you do, public, private, phone conversations, internet browsing history, and they look at it and they can't come up with anything newsworthy to call you on. Nothing corrupt, nothing negligent. Which I think that's really important too, because I think sometimes we live in this world where we as Christians, you know, we're good, morally upstanding people. It's not that we're corrupt, but we might just be a little bit negligent. Because even if we can sincerely claim to be not corrupt, there are plenty of times that we as faithful believers just don't have integrity to heart. Like, we're just kind of perpetually late to things and irresponsible and tend to drop the ball. And that's not who Daniel is. Remember, he's excellent. But he also has the character to back up that excellence. Daniel's impeccable character is what gives him steady grounds for influence in a culture that stands in opposition to what he believes. But there's been this problem of believers today that our character really doesn't stand out all that much when we're compared to non-believers. I mean, we act the same, we dress the same, we use the same vocabulary. And I'm not saying we should uh, go back to dressing like Amish people and start using KJV language when we do class presentations. If thou would understand thy, like, I'm not saying that's what we do. But there should be something in our character that stands out. That, that, that true character means that we actually live like Jesus. We, we have integrity. We're honest. We live in humility. We put the needs of others before ourselves. We're kind and faithful. We handle our money well. All of this is vital to what it means. And we actually build that character through discipline. That, that's the thing that built Daniel's influence and character in a way that could not be ignored. It was his unwavering discipline. Daniel was so disciplined that when he hears the decree is signed into law, what's the first thing he does? Verse 10. When Daniel learned that the document had been signed, he went to his house. The windows in its upstairs room opened towards Jerusalem, and three times a day he got down on his knees and prayed, giving thanks to God. And I love that final phrase, just as he had done before. That's what it means to be disciplined. 
That's what I mean by discipline, to set up this rhythmic practice of faithfulness. For Daniel, that discipline was setting himself three times a day to pray facing Jerusalem. Now, that's really interesting because if you go read the entire Torah, do you know how many laws you find about praying three times a day facing Jerusalem? You don't find any. That's not something the Torah requires of any faithful Jewish person, and yet it's something that Daniel goes out of his way to do anyways. Why? Is it because Daniel is legalistic and traditional and he just wants to make everyone miserable? No, it's that Daniel implements these personal practices in his life to make sure he is focused on the right thing. It seems to be some personal practice that he had been doing for years. I mean, think of all the other options that Daniel could have employed in this situation. Remember, Daniel is in the top four most influential men of Persia. He is that high status-wise. It would have been nothing for Daniel to go to King Darius and just say, Hey, Darius, I know that this is the decree, but can I get just an, accept, an, an exemption for me personally? You know, you know how I live and you know the God I serve. It's really not what I'm interested in. He could have probably went to Darius and said, Buddy, you got to see what these guys are trying to do here. You, you got to see what they're trying to, they're, they're trying to hurt me, and come on, King Darius, get this fixed. Uh, I mean, he could have at least closed the window and prayed silently, right? Like, it's 30 days, Daniel. It's just a blip on the radar in your 80 years of life. It doesn't require you denounce God or worship someone else. Just one month of privatizing your faith. Surely that's not a big deal. But see, that's the thing about discipline. Discipline calls that which doesn't seem to be a big deal a big deal. I don't know if you guys have watched. There's a new uh, documentary on Netflix called Quarterbacks. Um, by the way, for those of you guys that love Patrick Mahomes, and I know we're close to tech, if you watch it, just be ready. Patrick Mahomes has a potty mouth. I'm sorry to say it, but if you watch it, you'll learn that really quickly. But it's really interesting because it's this documentary uh, that traces through Patrick Mahomes uh, Kirk Cousins and Marcus Mariota, three uh, NFL quarterbacks through last year's season, and it's going through interviewing them, watching them in games, talking about it, and the amount of discipline these guys have, it's insane, the things they won't do. Kirk Cousins is doing this interview, and they're talking about how he'll sit around um, on certain days, and they'll record just play calls, and he'll sit around with his offensive coordinator and the backup quarterback, and they'll just run play calls sitting around a table, and he'll record it on his phone, and then the second he gets in his car, he plugs it into his car and just plays back and then visualizes those plays. As he, like, that's the amount of discipline they have. That's what Daniel is doing. It's these things that it doesn't seem like a big deal, but they're going to do it anyways. Because try to convince the Olympic swimmer that they don't really have to practice that day that they're set to practice. Try to convince that bodybuilder that they could eat that piece of cake as they train for that next show. Try to convince the Hebrew exile not to take seriously his relationship with his God. See, I fear that type of tenacity, that type of discipline is really not all that shared in church today. I mean, we've kind of become too scared of legalism and traditionalism. And don't hear me saying that we have to start doing these things. That's, that's legalism, and that's not what I'm getting at. But for us, all it takes is one particularly late Saturday night, and just the discipline of Sunday community is thrown out. Like, it's just not all that, e all that easy to find an excuse anymore. All it takes is one inconvenience, and we don't even think twice about getting rid of whatever spiritual discipline we had said we were committed to. And I'm not saying, again, do not hear me saying that you have to do these things to get God to love you. God's going to be so mad at you if you don't show up to church next. That's not what I'm communicating. God already loves you, but what I'm saying is Daniel's steadfast discipline is a key part of his cultural influence, resulting in 
Well, resulting in him being thrown into a lion's den. That's, that's what it results in. Let me take a minute and just critique this, though, because I think we give this children's story implication, and we end up kind of communicating that the story of Daniel in the lion's den is really just, if you have enough faith and you do enough right things, then God will save you from any hardships that you might fight. He will, he'll close the lion's mouth seeking to hurt your life. That is not what Daniel is communicating, and I can prove that just by saying, uh, I know of someone in the Bible that was far better than Daniel, more perfect than Daniel, could have ever dreamed of being. Someone that stood uh, even more founded in excellence and character and discipline. And when his perfection clashes with the culture around him, he actually wasn't put in a den, he was buried in a tomb because they killed him so fast. Daniel's divine salvation seems to be not so much for his sake as it seems to be for Darius' sake. Remember, Daniel's had 80 years of faithfulness. Daniel doesn't ever seem to be blinking twice in the face of all of this threat to his life. I'm sure when the angel showed up, he's like, oh yeah, that seems to make sense. That's exactly what happened to my friends 40 years ago. It seems to be more for Darius, so that when Darius sees what happens, we get to verse 25 and the end of the chapter. Then King Darius wrote to those of every people, nation, and language who live on the whole earth, may your prosperity abound. I issue a decree that in all my royal dominion, people must tremble in fear before the God of Daniel, for he is the living God, and he endures forever. His kingdom will never be destroyed, and his dominion has no end. He rescues and delivers. He performs signs and wonders in the heavens and on the earth, for he has rescued Daniel from the power of the lions. Our faithfulness and excellence and character and discipline, it's never for the sake of us getting ahead in life or receiving some worldly blessing. It's always for the sake of people seeing what God has done and seeing God's will unfold on earth as it is in heaven. And that's precisely what happens in Daniel chapter 6, leading us to this final verse in verse 28. So hold with me, we've got a little bit more textual stuff and then we'll wrap this whole thing up. Verse 28, so Daniel prospered during the reign of Darius and the reign of Cyrus the Persian. Now, if you have your Bible, you might notice that word and has a little footnote next to it. Anybody have a footnote next to their word and? If you go down to that footnote, it'll probably say other translations will include and it'll say even or who is. Here's the reality, it's, it's the Aramaic, and Aramaic's already a little bit tougher to translate, uh, but it's just one little linking verb um, and it has this really broad translation. It can be and, it can be or, it can be nor, it can be but, it can be. So all of this to say, there's some cultural and some interpreters that look at this and say, actually that word is better translated even or who is. So you could read this text to say, so Daniel prospered during the reign of Darius, who is the reign of Cyrus the Persian. King Darius is King Cyrus. Now, there's some historical stuff that's got play that proves that that could also be the case. All of that to say, if you have your Bibles, go to 2 Chronicles. If not, I'll have it uh, on the screen, I, I believe. 2 Chronicles is the final book of the Hebrew Old Testament. I know that our Hebrew Old Testament ends with Malachi, but in Jesus' day, when Jesus went to the temple to read the Old Testament, to read his scripture, he didn't have a New Testament, of course, he would have ended with the book of 2 Chronicles. First and Second Chronicles is kind of a summary document of the historical nation of Israel from the call of Abraham to the restoration. And so it ends like this, 2 Chronicles chapter 36, verse 22. In the first year of King Cyrus of Persia, 
in order to fulfill the word the Lord had spoken through Jeremiah, the Lord roused the spirit of King Cyrus of Persia to issue a proclamation throughout his entire kingdom and also to put it in writing. And here's what I believe is happening. I believe you have two options. One is that Darius and Cyrus are actually two different kings. If that's the case, Daniel's influence over Cyrus is just as prevalent. We just don't get that story. But the other possibility is that Darius and Cyrus are actually two different names for the same king. And 2 Chronicles is actually connecting us to what is it that changed the heart posture of King Darius? What's the event that made him look around and say, I actually need to acknowledge the God of Israel as the one true God? And then it's his declaration that brings restoration to Israel. And where is it that the prophet Jeremiah prophesies restoration? Oh yeah, in his letter to the exiles in Jeremiah chapter 29. Daniel is the connecting link between Jeremiah 29 and 2 Chronicles 36. It's his faithfulness that takes Israel from exile and God uses that to then bring them back to restoration. It's Cyrus's heart change. And then he writes this letter. This is what the King Cyrus, this is what King Cyrus of Persia says. The Lord, the God of the heavens, has given me all the kingdoms of earth and has appointed me to build him a temple in Jerusalem and Judah. Any one of his people among you may go up and may the Lord his God be with them. See, so here's my overall point. Daniel lives the entirety of his life virtually in exile. And yet in exile, he lives in such a way that every point when someone encounters him, they actually encounter his God. Which brings about God's divine promise through the prophet Jeremiah to restore Israel. And I think we could actually take this model then and we could blow it up even bigger so that we could take the concept of exile and we could actually turn it to sin because in Genesis chapter 3, there's a very clear distinction that Adam and Eve are exiled out of the garden, that sin is the exile of all humanity from the presence of God. But God pursues after them because God's desire is to bring about salvation and restoration to them. So how is God going to bring that about? Well, not just through the man Daniel, but through God-man himself, Jesus. And Jesus actually lives in these exact same ways that Daniel lives. Jesus refuses to compromise with his culture. He lives into the messianic calling that the Old Testament gives him. He doesn't participate in the pagan things of the world, but lives in true relation to God. He communicates truth as he lives his life. He lives it in faithfulness of excellence and character and discipline. And then, like I said, he doesn't get thrown to a lion's den, but he gets murdered on a cross. And this is actually God's plan to restore the world. That at the center we find the more perfect Daniel. Not just providing encounters with God as people encounter him, but actually providing full access and restoration to God. The story of Daniel is just a micro picture of the story of the gospel. So what does all of this have to do with us? The story of Daniel sets the example, but the story of Jesus invites us into participation where we live in both exile and in restoration. See, this is the complexity of our lives. We actually live both in the circle and in the experience of salvation. Because if you know Jesus, you already know what it means to be restored. You've lived that life. But God is still holding you here in this world of exile so that you become the encounter point for God. That when people encounter you, they actually encounter God. So that God's presence is not just here at First Baptist, it's actually in your workplace. It's actually at your school. 
This is how God has written this world story, and he's invited you to be a part of it. So here's the key point. Resolved exiles create encounters with God. You create encounters with God wherever you go, and that's neither through separatism of, oh, I just can't participate in this world around me. They're too foreign and too, too out there. I just got to retreat into my own. That's not that, but it's neither through syncretism. Well, I'll just compromise a little bit. No, it's intentionally walking with Jesus, living like Jesus, or we could say living like Daniel. It's the no compromise. It's the living into your calling. It's all of these things that we've said. So why on earth would we do this? And I'll give you two reasons and we'll close. Number one, without these practices of restoration, things often spiral out of control. I think it actually looks like this. If we don't take our, our practice seriously, this is what our world starts to look like and what our lives and our churches start to look like. It's the premise of what I call crisis spirituality. Well, Philip, I'll live into those things for as long as I can, but as soon as my life gets back on tracks and I feel like it's going well, I'm just gonna step out and I'll do things as I see fit. So yeah, I'll, I'll live without compromise for a while, but as soon as I get things back on course, I'm back in control and I'll take care of it from there and then we start running it off things. Oh, well, I better get back to God. And we come back to God, and then we run it off course. And in the process, we just ruin our lives and our churches. God calls us to live with integrity in all of what we do. So if we want to avoid that, then we actually take this call seriously. And then number two, this is how we play a role in the restoration of Portalis. You see, the reality is you may not be able to change culture, but you can change cultures because you live in cultures. Your family has a culture. Your workplace has a culture. Your school has a culture. And you have been placed in that position to live like Daniel was placed in Babylon, that you might actually be the encounter point for God there. That you might actually change Portalis from the inside out. So the question we close with is, what's the small c cultures that you can influence? And how do you influence them? I'll put the final little chart back up again so you can see it. Because here's the reality. Restoration is coming. It is a story God has pre-written. It is a story that he will end. Restoration is coming. And through the vast complexity of all of these stories being interwoven together, God has invited you, invited you to participate in that. But are you going to participate? Maybe you feel like your life is already spiraling out of control and you just say, Philip, I need to get rid of this crisis spirituality and I need to come and give myself. I'll be up here, I'd love to pray for you. But if you're feeling like you're ready to go impact culture, then maybe you take this time just to pray and say, God, where do you want me to live? Who do you want me to impact and how do I do it? And I would say these six things that Daniel did are pretty good places to start. Let's pray. God, thank you for your love and goodness. I pray that you would be in the midst of us even here and now that we would see your culture expand in this world's culture, not for the sake of power, not for the sake of glory or feeling like we've accomplished anything, but for the sake of humanity, to know what it means to live as true humans. God, let First Baptist be a place where that happens. It's in Jesus' name we pray, amen.